Part One, Chapter Seven of the Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part One, Chapter Seven. A Conference of the Powers. The Russians, led by General Vodkakov arrived at Hampstead half an hour after the bombardment had ceased, and the rest of the invaders, including Razuli, who had got off on an alibi, dropped in at intervals during the week. By the evening of Saturday, the 6th of August, even the Chinese had limped to the metropolis, and the question now was what was going to happen. England displayed a polite indifference to the problem. We are essentially a nation of sightseers. To us the excitement of staring at the invaders was enough. Into the complex international problems to which the situation gave rise, it did not occur to us to examine. When you consider that a crowd of five hundred Londoners will assemble in the space of two minutes, abandoning entirely all its other business, to watch a cab-horse that has fallen in the street, it is not surprising that the spectacle of nine separate and distinct armies in the metropolis left no room in the British mind for other reflections. The attraction was beginning to draw people back to London now. They found that the German shells had had one excellent result. They had demolished nearly all the London statues. And what might have conceivably seemed a drawback, the fact that they had blown great holes in the wood paving, passed unnoticed amidst the more extensive operations of the London City Council. Taking it for all in all, the German gunners had simply been beautifying London. The Albert Hall, struck by a merciful shell, had come down with a run, and was now a heap of picturesque ruins. Whitefield's tabernacle was a charred mass, and the burning of the Royal Academy proved a great comfort to all. At a mass meeting in Trafalgar Square a hearty vote of thanks was passed, with acclamation, to Prince Otto. But if Londoners rejoiced, the invaders were very far from doing so. The complicated state of foreign politics made it imperative that there should be no friction between the powers. Yet here a great number of them were in perhaps as embarrassing a position as ever diplomatists were called upon to unravel. When nine dogs are assembled round one bone, it is rarely on the bone alone that teeth-marks are found at the close of the proceedings. Prince Otto of Saxe-Fenig set himself resolutely to grapple with the problem. His chance of grappling successfully with it was not improved by the stream of telegrams which arrived daily from his imperial master demanding to know whether he had yet subjugated the country, and if not, why not. He had replied guardedly, stating the difficulties which lay in his way, and had received the following. At once mailed fist display. On get or out get. Wilhelm. It was then that the distracted prince saw that steps must be taken at once. Carefully worded letters were dispatched by district messenger boys to the other generals. Towards nightfall the replies began to come in, and having read them, the prince saw that this business could never be settled without a personal interview. Many of the replies were absolutely incoherent. Razuli, apologizing for delay on the ground that he had been away in the Isle of Dogs cracking a rib, wrote suggesting that the Germans and Moroccans should combine with a view to playing the confidence trick on the Swiss general, who seemed a simple sort of chap. "'Reminds me of dear old Maclean,' wrote Razuli. There is money in this. Will you come in? Wire in the morning. 
the general of the Monaco forces thought the best way would be to settle things by means of a game of chance of the odd man out class. He knew a splendid game called Slippery Sam. He could teach them the rules in half a minute. The reply of Prince Ping-Pong Pang of China was probably brilliant and scholarly, but it was expressed in Chinese characters of the Ming period, which Prince Otto did not understand, and even if he had it would have done him no good, for he tried to read it from the top downwards instead of from the bottom up. The young Turks, as might have been expected, rode in their customary flippant, cheeky style. They were full of mischief as usual. The body of the letter, scrawled in a round schoolboy hand, dealt principally with the details of the booby-trap which the general had successfully laid for his head of staff. He was frightfully shirty, concluded the note jubilantly. From the Baligala camp the messenger-boy returned without a scalp, and with a verbal message to the effect that the king could neither read nor write. Grand Duke Vodkakov from the Russian lines replied in his smooth, cynical Russian way, "'You appear anxious, my dear prince, to scratch the other entrance. May I beg you to remember what happens when you scratch a Russian?' As for the mad mullah's reply, it was simply pure delirium. The journey from Somaliland and his meeting with his friend Mr. Dillon appeared to have had the worse effects on his sanity. He opened with the statement that he was a teapot, and that was the only really coherent remark he made. Prince Otto placed a hand wearily on his throbbing brow. "'We must have a conference,' he said. "'It is the only way.' Next day eight invitations to dinner went out from the German camp. It would be idle to say that the dinner, as a dinner, was a complete success. Halfway through the Swiss general missed his diamond solitaire, and cold glances were cast at Rizzuli, who sat on his immediate left. Then the king of Boligala's table manners were frankly inelegant. When he wanted a thing he grabbed for it, and he seemed to want nearly everything. Nor was the behaviour of the leader of the young Turks all that could be desired. There had been some talk of only allowing him to come down to dessert, but he had squashed in, as he briefly put it, and it would be paltering with the truth to say that he had not had far more champagne than was good for him. Also, the General of Monaco had brought a pack of cards with him, and was spoiling the harmony by trying to induce Prince Ping-Pong-Pang to find the lady, and the brainless laugh of the Mad Mullah was very trying. Altogether, Prince Otto was glad when the cloth was removed, and the waiters left the company to smoke and talk business. Anyone who has had anything to do with the higher diplomacy is aware that diplomatic language stands in a class by itself. It is a language specially designed to deceive the chance listener. Thus, when Prince Otto, turning to Grand Duke Vodkakov, said quietly, I hear the crops are coming on nicely down Kentway, the habitual frequenter of diplomatic circles would have understood, as did the Grand Duke, what he really meant was, "'Now about this business, what do you propose to do?' The company, with the exception of the representative of the young Turks, who was drinking creme de mint out of a tumbler, the mullah, and the king of Baligala, bent forward, deeply interested, to catch the Russian's reply. Much would depend on this. Vodkakov carelessly flicked the ash off his cigarette. "'So I hear,' he said slowly. But in Shropshire, they tell me, they are having trouble with the Mangelwurzels. The prince frowned at this typical piece of shifty Russian diplomacy. 
"'How is your highness getting on with your highness's roller-skating?' he inquired guardedly. The Russian smiled a subtle smile. "'Poorly,' he said. "'Poorly. The last time I tried the outside edge I thought somebody had thrown the building at me.' Prince Otto flushed. He was a plain, blunt man, and he hated this beating about the bush. "'Why does a chicken cross the road?' he demanded almost angrily. The Russian raised his eyebrows and smiled, but made no reply. The prince, resolved to give him no chance of wriggling away from the point, pressed him hotly. "'Think of a number,' he cried. "'Double it. Add ten. Take away the number you first thought of. Divide it by three, and what is the result?' There was an odd silence. Surely the Russian, expert at evasion as he was, could not parry so direct a challenge as this. He threw away his cigarette and lit a cigar. "'I understand,' he said, with a tinkle of defiance in his voice, "'that the suffragettes, as a last resource, propose to capture Mr. Asquith and sing the suffragette anthem to him.' A startled gasp ran round the table. "'Because the higher he flies, the fewer?' asked Prince Otto, with sinister calm. "'Because the higher he flies, the fewer,' said the Russian smoothly, but with the smoothness of a treacherous sea. There was another gasp. The situation was becoming alarmingly tense. "'You are plain-spoken, Your Highness,' said Prince Otto slowly. At this moment— the tension was relieved by the young Turk falling off his chair with a crash onto the floor. Everyone jumped up startled. Razuli took advantage of the confusion to pocket a silver ash-tray. The interruption had a good effect. Frowns relaxed, the wranglers began to see that they had allowed their feelings to run away with them. It was with a conciliatory smile that Prince Otto, filling the Grand Duke's glass, observed, "'Trumper is perhaps the prettier bat.' but I confess I admire Fry's robust driving. The Russian was won over. He extended his hand. Two down and three to play, and the red near the top corner pocket, he said with that half-oriental charm which he knew so well how to exhibit on occasion. The two shook hands warmly. And so it was settled, the Russian having, as we have seen, waived his claim to bombard London in his turn. There was no obstacle to a peaceful settlement. It was obvious that the superior forces of the Germans and Russians gave them, if they did but contribute, the key to the situation. The decision they arrived at was, as set forth above, as follows. After the fashion of the moment, the Russian and German generals decided to draw the color line. That meant that the troops of China, Somaliland, Baligala, as well as Rizuli and the Young Turks, were ruled out. They would be given a week in which to leave the country. Resistance would be useless. The combined forces of the Germans, Russians, Swiss, and Monacoans were overwhelming, especially as the Chinese had not recovered from their wanderings in Wales, and were far too footsore still to think of serious fighting. When they had left, the remaining four powers would continue the invasion jointly. Prince Otto of Saxe-Fenig went to bed that night, comfortably conscious of a good work well done. He saw his way now clear before him, but he had made one miscalculation. He had not reckoned with Clarence Chugwater. End of Part 1 Chapter 7